Welcome to House of Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from this past Sunday. For more information about other messages or events at House of Hope, visit www.ihope.today. has a way of working with people that is personalized. He has a relationship with each one of us, and that relationship is completely different. We see a different side of him everywhere we go and whatever we do. Let's pray with that in mind. Precious Father, oh Lord, we thank you for the journey you've placed us all on, the direction we're going in, and as we draw nearer to you, you are always near to us. We thank you and praise you. Guide my words this morning. Help me. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Jesus especially healed people differently. And so one of the persons that Jesus healed of blindness, when he was healed, he was asked to go and wash his eyes in a pool. And he did because mud was in his eyes. Christ had put mud on his eyes. And when he came to Christ, Christ touched him, and he saw everybody as trees. He had extreme astigmatism, as scientists would say. And so he told that to Christ, and Christ saw and he touched him again, and then his sight was perfectly normal, and he could see. There was a second man who was healed, and... Uh, Christ, again, did the same thing. He had to put mud on his eyes. He was going to wash at a certain pool at a certain well, and he could see. Christ touched him, and he could see. There's a third friend who was cured of blindness. He was sitting by the side of the road as Christ passed him, and he cried out to Jesus, and the disciple says, shut up. But paraphrase there. I don't think that's quite in Scripture. But anyway, the sense was there. And uh, he kept on screaming and yelling. And Jesus said, bring him to me. So he came, and Christ just spoke over him and said, you can see. And he could. That man, he could see. Well, after Christ's resurrection, these three fellows got together, and they were having some fellowship, wonderful fellowship. And um, eventually he came over to talk. How were you healed by the way Jesus told us? And so the last guy said, well, you know, Christ just spoke, and I could see. And it was marvelous. And the second one said, you mean he didn't touch you? Oh, Christ touched me, touched my eyes, and then I could see. And the third one said, he didn't touch you twice? So the, sec- the last one went out, and he started the Pentecostal church. And the second guy went out, and he started the Salvation Army. And the third guy went out, and he started the Baptist church. Sometimes we do things out of our experience rather than truly understanding who Jesus is. And we're all different, and we're all individuals, and that's very powerful. I think of that old story of the blind men uh, approaching an elephant and describing what they see. And the one who touched the side of the elephant said, ah, an elephant's a wall. And somebody else touched the tail and said, oh, he's a snake. Somebody else grabbed the nose and said, oh, 
an elephant is like a fire hose. Somebody else painted her legs and said, oh, an elephant is like a trunk. They all experience the elephant in different ways. And so we all experience God in completely different and very personal ways. He is much more complex than an elephant and much more simple than a ball. He's all of these things at the same time. And so what I'm going to talk about is my experience, my journey, my path, and maybe some of you will be able to relate to that. But just because I experience God this way, does that mean that's absolute truth and you have to do the same? And if you don't do the same, there's something wrong with you. We all are different, and we all experience God differently. So I especially want to talk about my journey with respect to conflict with the evil one. We don't all battle against flesh and blood, but we battle against the spirits spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. So I want to talk about that this morning. How do we battle against evil? So let's start my journey back to, oh, 48 or so years ago. 48 is about five months ago, 1971. And I'll tell you the story of the arrogant atheist meets the beautiful, intelligent young teenager named Bellamy. It was an unfair battle. Of course, the arrogant atheist didn't have a chance. But anyway, he didn't know that at the time. Uh, eventually, he asked the young girl out. And of course, she wisely said no. So he asked her out again, and she wisely said no. And he asked her out again, and she wisely said no. And he asked her out again, and she wisely said no. And then he asked her out again, and she wisely said no. And he asked her out again, and she said now, try Tuesday. <laughs> so we asked her out one more time, the eighth time, and then she agreed to go out with me. And this was probably November of 1971. And by February, in, or in January 1971, first day of the new year, I had gone to my first church service in 20 years and uh, a watch night service for me. Some smart guy in the church said, "Oh, when you guys get married, um, come to me, and I'll give you a good deal on getting um, your invitation for the wedding." Anyway, uh, after that, about January fifth or so. Now, I want you all to understand. This is how I remember things. If you want to find out what really happened, talk to my wife. But this is how I remember things. So. January 5th or so, she came to me and said, do you want to continue going out with me? Here. She gave me a little Phillips New Testament and said, read this. And after reading the Bible for a while, for the rest of the month, I think I, I just gobbled it up. It was fantastic. I enjoyed it. I remember having tears roll out my cheeks. But it came to a point where I stood with an interesting threesome. There was me. And there was Satan over here, and there was Jesus over here, and Satan promised me, he said, hey, go my way, continue on the way you're going, it's great, you're going to do wonderful, I'll give you fame, I'll give you fortune, I'll give you uh, all the things that you lust for. 
the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And, and Jesus said, I'll give you a great life. It'll be wonderful. It'll be exciting. It will be adventurous. It will be challenging. But you will be loved. You will have everything that you need. And in the end, I will give you eternal life. And by the way, Satan, in the end, he's promising you eternal hellfire. So I pause for a second and say, I'll choose the door on the right. <laughs> so I chose Jesus and walked away from him. And uh, uh, we celebrated our 48th anniversary of my uh, of our engagement on Valentine's Day, 1972. So, <laughs> uh, my first challenge, the first time that I ran into Satan directly, we were in, uh, I was a research associate at the University of Waterloo, and uh, the church I was in ended up, I got involved, I can't even remember how, but I was with the pastor, he invited me in, there was a young lad who was being possessed, which is very scary, I, you know, when I, when I entered the room, I felt kind of uh, doubtful, oh, And I saw this young boy, and after the pastor there had claimed Jesus Christ over him, started rolling around on the floor under the kitchen table. And the legs of the table were four by fours like this. And he snapped one of them off and started running around the four by fours, just imagine that. Two two by fours used to be like that. Very scary. But the pastor who was doing the... Uh, the exorcism was not scared. And so this was, the, this was my first chance of seeing that. The man was not cured. The, the demon was not uh, cast out. And so I consider that a failure the first time I met it. I didn't know what was going on. I think today I would know a little more about what to do, but I didn't at that time. I was only... 52 years old. Maybe this was 1974 or so. Then uh, we moved on to a few years later, say 1976 or so, and I was teaching at Northern Lights College in Dawson Creek. And I started a little Bible study. And you were allowed to do that in those days. Today, you can't do that without the students asking for it. It's just uh, not correct. So I started a little Bible study, and I had about a dozen young people come to the Bible study. And eventually it turned out that two of the kids were Chinese students who were in country illegally. They had, their visas had run out, and they just stayed in Canada and had no life. And two of the members of it were in different covens. They were both studying witchcraft, and they were in different groups. So... Uh, I don't know how God puts you in these places, but there I was, right? So, uh, one of the boys who was uh, in the country illegally asked for me to pray for him. He had decided the Holy Spirit had convicted him, and he was led to the Lord, 
in that Bible study, and he wanted to turn himself in. Uh, knowing that, if, you know, once you're deported from the country, you can never come back. So he went before the judge, and the pastor at that time was a very fine Christian man that I, that I loved. And while he went down to Vancouver and spoke for him and whatever, and while they were there, the roommate of this young girl was uh, also led to the Lord. In prison, yeah, in prison on these charges. So he went before the judge, and the judge said, well, you know, the recommendations are great, uh, but the law is the law. You've broken the law, and you have to be deported. But he did not give the ultimatum. You can never reapply and come back to Canada. So we lost track of Winsome, and we did hear by the grapevine that he was very bitter and angry that God didn't honor him and didn't... Uh, give him a, uh, a non-guilty verdict so he could stay in Canada. At least that's what we heard. And then, in I think it was about 1988, a car drives outside our house here in Toronto, and Winston gets out, locks the door, knocks on our door, and here he was. He had uh, done very, very well in China. He is now a, a, an owner of a very large used car lot, he also was, had started a super large evangelistic outreach in China. He had led thousands of people to the Lord already. He was just doing amazing. And he found us from Dawson Creek. We didn't leave any forwarding address or anything. He found where we lived while in Arizona. It was tremendous to be united with him. And he told us all the wonderful things that God had done for him. And he wanted to honor us. And we thought, what an unbelievable was an amazing man, is an amazing man. Sometimes you do a little thing and it means a lot. The man who led uh, uh, Moody to the Lord only led one person to the Lord in his lifetime, and Moody led thousands, right? D.L. Moody was an amazing man, and a strange story, but sometimes the littlest thing brings the greatest reward. And we love and honor ministry there winsome, even though at the time I had considered it a failure, he in fact God was honoring it and he came in and did a wonderful job. Then uh, fast forward a little oh one of the women in the class we'll call her uh, Heidi. Heidi was uh, one of the ones that was involved in witchcraft. And so she came to me uh, and asked if she could be led to the Lord. So I pulled out my four spiritual laws and led them to her, and that was what we did in those days. And uh, she listened to what I was to what I was reading, and uh, I said, "Now, repeat after me the prayer." And this wonderful law. Would you like to receive Jesus into your heart? And she said, "Yes, yes, very much." So we started reading through the four spiritual laws. And suddenly she stopped in the middle of the prayer, right at the sentence where we receive Christ. And I asked her, what's wrong? Why, why can't you go on? Why can't you repeat? And then she said, uh, uh, I still want to become a Christian. Let's try again. So we tried again. And this time she wasn't even able to get the first sentence of the prayer. And again, I didn't know what was wrong. 
I didn't know that I was facing certain dangers. And he had his excuses. And so that's another failure. I just didn't know. Now, I don't know what God did. I'm hoping that eventually this young lady, the last I saw her, she had gotten into prostitution. And one of the Johns had knifed her face. And she was in hospital for a while. We weren't allowed to visit her because her parents thought we were a cult and a rebel and whatever. But I still have faith that God eventually was able to lead her to the Lord and to help her to get where we were. But at the time, I really felt weak and unable to do what God wanted me to do. So on my journey, I started asking God, how can I be better in these battles against the evil one? And so God looked at me and he said, um, I want you to come up here, and I will teach you what you need to know. So, he said to me, you don't know the steps. So, the first step is to confess all your sins, which I do every day. So, I confess to them all my sins. I am a sinner unworthy. And Jesus Christ and faithful and just to forgive us of that. And then God asked me, is there any, is there any uh, unforgiveness in your heart? And so I had several times I'd had a uh, partner in business who betrayed me and things like that. And, uh, and so I forgave them. I said, this is good. So welcome. Welcome to the heights. But I said, well, this is, this is great, Lord. I love being up here, but uh, I would really like you promised that I could be in heaven, seated in heavenly places with you. Uh, but how do I get from here to there, right? And uh, yeah, and God said, well, you maybe just don't know the steps. And I said, well, the first step is the helmet of salvation. The second step is you need to see yourself as I see you. So put on the belt of truth. This is an awful big belt, Lord. He said, well, my truth is even bigger than that belt, so put on the belt. And I started to see God as who I was in my life. And then he said, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Not your righteousness, because you're broken. Your battle against sin, you're fighting it well. Firstly, I don't want you to continue fighting against sin. Instead, what I want you to do is to seek out righteousness and practice righteousness. Different focus there. Okay, I guess I can do that. And so, I've been trying to do that ever since. Follow Look to Jesus and follow the path of righteousness and practice righteousness and serve So well, that breastplate of righteousness has nothing to do with my righteousness. It has to do with Christ's righteousness. And I'm putting on Jesus Christ to protect myself, to protect my heart. 
the word says it is written. And Abraham believed God. It was counted unto him as righteousness. So, as we begin to read this text. And then he finally said, the next item is what I want you to do is to raise up a shield of faith. I'm a scientist. I've always doubted you guys. I've always doubted you. This was in February of 2013 when God said to me, would you like to have deeper faith? And I said, yes. And I was actually given the gift of faith. It's one of the gifts that is mentioned in Romans chapter 12. And suddenly all my doubt went away and I knew God and I loved him. And so I was able to raise up a shield of faith with which we can snuff out all of the fiery darts of the evil one. You know, Satan has a very limited repertoire. When he attacks us, when he puts his hooks in us, it's always the same. You're a sinner, you're not worthy, you're ugly, you're short, you're fat, you're old, you're a woman, you're a man, you're gay, you're red, you're yellow, whatever. He attacks us with the same lies over and over again. And he's teaching me to laugh at those lies. Now, in 2010, I had a dream. And that dream was, I saw, I took my bus and I drove my bus onto another bus. Don't ask me how I could do that. I don't know. It's a dream, right? And I was carrying on my bus four desks and four pastors. I was supposed to be on that bus. And two of the desks were work tables, you know, the kind of thing you have uh, for doing art or doing, you know, in your workroom, in your carpentry lab or whatever. And one of those, the third one was also a table like that, but was broken. It had two places with great big gashes in it. Imagine a huge V in your table in two different spots. And the fourth desk was a really nice oak desk. And, and then there were the four pastors. And, you know, I asked God what, the, what, the, what was going on with this dream. Of course, I asked the wisest person in my family, and Melanie Misaki, to help me to work out what the dream was about. Because there were, the dream repeated itself. She said, well, that's like the dream of Joseph, right? And that means it is the future that's going on, and the four desks represent four years. And the first two years will be hard work, the third year, brokenness, and the fourth year, you will see that there will have nothing to do. So uh, this was 2010. In 2013, as I was seated up in my heavenly places, can do that stuff. <laughs> Seated in heavenly places. And I looked down from there, and uh, my brother-in-law, my son-in-law, sorry, my son-in-law, was going through a very, very difficult time. Turned out that he had cancer. And it's documented in the book that Sam Reed wrote. And as he lay down, while he lay down, and uh, he 
very powerful story. But anyway, I felt very moved by that. And so as I'm looking down from heaven with God's eyes and seeing the need, I said, Lord, I need to do that. I need to to feel empathy towards my fellow man, and I need to do that because of that. So the Lord said, well, come on down. So I did. And he said, but I like it up there. And he said, well, you can be in both places at once. But again, I'm God. So I'm looking down, and I'm actually there. And so I didn't have a lot to do in this job, but I said, well, let's try it. And so what happened with the story, to make the story short and quick, is that I drove my son-in-law. My son-in-law is a very strong, powerful person. And so we said, he was saying, I got a groin injury. My left leg is really sore. Uh, no big deal. The next day, uh, this was uh, Saturday morning, he woke up and he could hardly walk. He falls on his feet like this. And I said, you look in pain. Let's, I want to take you to the emergency. So I said, well, okay, I'll give in and we'll go to emergency, but let's not go to Lethbridge because I'll be seeing you for about two hours and it's going to be really difficult. Let's go to Redmond. So we went down to Redmond, Alberta. I drove him down there. And he couldn't straighten his leg out. And so we went to the hospital there, the emergency room, and there's like one doctor and one nurse. You know, this is a big city, right? We don't know four people in that little ship. <laughs> um, and so the nurse asked him, well, how, what's your level of pain? And the level of went from 1 to 10. And he said, it's a 12. And so he was there for a little while, and the doctor finally came in and looked at him and said, wow, this is really serious. I have no, he looks perfectly healthy, but he clearly has an infection, and we don't know what's going on. So we need to ship him all the way to get so they put him on an ambulance, and they said, you go home. So I went back to Lethbridge, where I was staying, and he was shipped to Lethbridge. So we handed him to Lethbridge. And they quickly discovered that he was broken. Necrotizing fascia disease. The highest level, the worst form of the disease that you can have. And it had already infected all the way up into his hip. Normally, the way you handle that disease, it's so deadly, you amputate. But they couldn't amputate. It was already too advanced. It was actually getting into his torso. There was nothing they could do. So this was uh, March 23rd. March 29th comes up. That's my birthday. And uh, Good Friday, the same time. And uh, I was, I had, well, most prophets and intercessory prayers are not good morning. So they had the afternoon and the evening shifts, and we had a 24-hour prayer vigil going on. So I had the morning shift. So I got there at 8 o'clock in the morning, waited around half an hour for all the nurses to have their meetings and whatever, and they would bring me my news for four of us on the afternoon. And then the nurse comes out and says, we need to talk to your daughter, your wife, and she needs to come in. To this point, we've had five possible things that could kill him. An amputating his kidneys had backed up completely. His blood was toxic. He had no blood pressure. His lungs were not working efficiently. 
he had a serious infection that didn't seem to be going away any longer at all. But from that morning, his lungs started to bleed. And so they said, you know, this is it. At that point, we found out later that the nurses and doctors were saying he had no hope. He had to see the priest for revival. But they told us it was 5%. Yeah. And so we were okay. So we started praying. By the time lunchtime came around and our little church was, or that little hospital was filled with over 100 people praying for Jesus. And meanwhile, internationally, people were praying for Jesus. There was also gone viral a prayer for Mr. Mertz. In some areas, they were actually praying both for Bruce and for Mr. Mertz, not knowing that they were with Bruce Mertz. It was not that. They were praying for him on every continent, we found out, including Antarctica. It had gone viral. And so they had to do an operation on him to stop the hemorrhaging in the lungs. They couldn't move him. The operating theater was across the hall. It got him 20 feet away and he was at wall. They could not move him. He was that dangerous. So they did the operation in situ in his room where he was in. alive to this day, no amputations, a little bit of uh, discoloration on his legs where they had to uh, put in uh, um, uh, in transplants. And when he left the hospital eventually, his kidneys that had completely died on him and they thought he would have to have dialysis for the rest of his life, they tested his kidneys and they were the kidneys of a clown. They tested, you know how you stick your finger and they test your, your oxygenation. Everybody comes, you know, 97, 98%, that's good, except for my wife, about 82%. I don't know who keeps me alive. <laughs> anyway. uh, they tested him, 100%. They thought that he would be in physio and learning to walk for, you know, two or three months. He was walking the second day. Now, needless to say, he's perfectly healthy. He runs with me all the time. No amputations, nothing, no sign. In fact, it was really funny. Uh, well, not so funny at the occasion. It was uh, um, uh, my, uh, my father-in-law's funeral. He was there with, uh, uh, and uh, he was there in casket. But he came there, and he was there at the festivities. And uh, my one of my daughter-in-laws was there, and my father, and she brought a doctor from Calgary to be with him as his wife, and his mother-in-law, and he was saying, well, where's this guy who had necrotizing fasciitis? And they said, well, you're standing right next to him. He was probably, he did not believe in his wife. He knew he had fasciitis. Absolutely. And he's gone on to be wonderful teacher. He's now one of the major um, workers and head of Christian Alliance here up in Wellington. Make a wonderful prayer for his mother. Then, two months later, my son, who was a minister, a pastor in the Alliance Church in Hall River, had a flood. Completely flooded out. He had water levels uh, just within six inches of the household beams 
to hold the main floor together. His basement was filled with water, and not nice, clean water either. What had happened is the river had gone out, smashed into the, the elbow, and the elbow couldn't take it, and so the water had spread into the fields that had been freshly fertilized and manured, and then floated around, back around, and invaded the tank. And the very berms that were going to hold the water in the river actually held the floodwaters back and fed in the stream. And he was the pastor there, and he worked tirelessly for three years, cleaning people's homes with hazmat suits on and the whole bit, digging out the sewage and everything else in the building. And that was the third year, since 2013, was the year of brokenness. And I thought it was because we were going to be broke, but in fact, it was that these two very serious things had happened to my family. And God had gloriously helped them out. Christopher and his family were down to just this one suitcase that they could carry. Everything else was gone. Their home was condemned. And eventually they got their home back. Pastor Herbert tremendous amount of work getting rid of the backyard and all of that good stuff. And they're doing very well now. In fact, Christmas just here this last week, fixing up my house. And so he did a great job putting all the baseboards and things correct. So, they're ready. And so God has been very faithful to me since. And knowing what I know now, I could go back, I think, and really help those four people in Nicholas Stoker. And since then, uh, I haven't had a direct uh, contact with Satan. He's been avoiding me. So, let me finish with what God taught me about the uh, full armor of God. So, let me read it for you again. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. This is from the NLSB. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil day Having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded yourself with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit with this view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So for me, what I'm getting out of the passage is, when we're faced with Satan, our job is to put on defensive armor. And all of that defensive armor is really putting on Jesus Christ. And we are to stand. We have to show up. 90% of the Christian life is showing up. 
five oh point one 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 percent maybe is something we should do. All the rest is being done by God. And so the sword of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The word is not the Bible so much as it is the capital W word. It is the word of Jesus Christ, the living word. And he fights the battle for us. In Second Chronicles, you all know the wonderful story of, I think it was Jehoshaphat, was the king, and the Arameans were coming with a great army against him. So what did he do? He says, called together the worship team and said, you guys are all going to march in front of the army and be our number one thing, and the army will follow behind you. Of course, I don't know if uh, any of our worship team is here, but I don't know how you would feel if we said to you, you're going to be in the vanguard of the army and go out and fight our battles for us. Um, I think that the Lord has been teaching me, at least for me, the purpose of worship is to strengthen my faith. And so with my faith strengthened, I can stand. And my job is to show up. The choir's job is show up. Remember old Gideon hiding away in the, in the wine finch, uh, harvesting his grain, and uh, the angel Lord shows up and says, great and mighty warrior, and he was a coward hiding away from the enemy. And yet, God brought him out to the point where he could stand with 299 other men, completely unarmed, against the battle, fight a battle against 200,000 enemies. And all he had was a trumpet and a torch covered by a pot. He smashed the pot, and God fought the battle for him and destroyed 200,000. But he had to show up. That's all he had to do, and stand. And so for me, what God is teaching me, stand firm. Put on the defensive armor. Protect yourself. And protect yourself from those silly things Satan's going to do. He's going to attack you and say you're a sinner and you're short and you're fat and you're ugly and you're old. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because my righteousness can be claimed if you simply believe like this song here. If you believe, it will be accounted to us as righteousness. And we put on Christ's righteousness and we let him fight the battle for us. And we get to watch. This is how I fight my battles. I let Christ do the battle for me. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to our Sermon of the Week. Our desire is that you will be changed by the love of the Father and the power of his presence. For more information about House of Hope, visit us at www.ihope.today.